Welcome to Slaking Thirsts, a podcast that's all about bringing the thirst deep within our hearts for love and communion to the heart of Christ, a divine heart, who is seeking our love and communion in return. The hope is that the two thirsts would meet and both thirsts would be slaked. All right, dear friends, uh, by just show of hands, I'm just curious, who attempted to make their way through that, uh, that homily in the book, the, the old ancient sermon? Anybody attempt? What do we think? It's a lot to digest. It's a lot to digest. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot to digest. You know, nothing like a fourth century bishop preaching to you. So, okay, well... I'm going to be expounding on that tonight. So uh, if you didn't get into it, that's okay. We're going to try and expound it tonight. So the, the, my talk tonight, the topic for tonight is the news that changes everything. The news that changes everything. This is what we're getting into tonight. So last week, just to remind ourselves, last week I wanted us to get in touch with our hearts. I wanted us to get in touch with our hearts with that whole idea. Remember I showed you that bumper sticker that uh, was on the back of that card, Jesus is the answer, Right? And the whole story of Monsignor Albacete where he responds to that by just simply asking, yeah, but what's the question? What's the question, right? If Jesus is the answer, the question is this, that my heart cries out for the infinite. My heart cries out for a life beyond the grave. My heart demands. Remember that quote from Benedict XVI? The heart demands infinity but cannot grant it, Right? I want a beauty that doesn't fade. I want love that's secure. I want love that doesn't end. I don't want there to be death. But we're caught in this nexus of death. We need something to break into this. We need our hearts cry for the infinite to be answered. And that's who Jesus is. That's how we ended last week. With that reflection on how, like if he is God in the flesh, if he is the Logos, the Word made flesh, that means the infinite one has packaged himself in finitude to put himself within our grasp, to feed our hearts with his infinite love and mercy. So tonight, though, what I want to do is I, I want to kind of, the image I have in my mind is I want to kind of keep rotating the diamond of Christianity, right? You know, think about a multifaceted gemstone that you look at it from different aspects, different facets, and you see it and perceive different things. So that's what I want to look at tonight. Like I said in that prayer, the goal for tonight is not necessarily new information, but I, w I want us to walk away with a... a, like a... Huh. Whoa! El Diablo. That's never happened with these. Joseph, what are you doing, man? Is it locked in there? It was locked in there before. He always does. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Oh, yeah, no, I'm okay. I need a whiskey. I, need, I don't know what I need. Does anybody have any Xanax? I don't know. Okay. That was a lot. All right. I want us to walk away with awe and wonder is what I want. I want us to walk away with awe and wonder. I want us to hear the good news of the gospel like we've never maybe heard it before. And boy, oh boy, do we need some good news. Can I get an amen? amen. We need some good news. We need some good news. You might have noticed, maybe not, but you might have noticed that our world is kind of crazy right now. Things are a little bit crazy. Have you noticed this? Some things are, are crazy. 
the train, it, it, I don't even know if it's on the tracks anymore. Like, there's just some things about it that are crazy. We're living through some insane times. Maybe you remember this. Uh, anybody remember this? Is it just me? We all remember this? Yeah. Are, are the world shut down. I mean, just uh, insane reality to live, to live through. We, we live through, and are still living through in many ways, a kind of social unrest, protest riots, burning down precincts, burning down just everything, right? The world is desperate in many ways and crying out and crying out. Where do we hear the cry? We hear the cry in the fact that, well, th this, this article was published back in 2019 and it made a splash. Mitch Album, who I'm sure you guys know is that famous author and columnist, he wrote this article in 2019, Why is Living Shorter and Dying Sooner a New Trend? That when he wrote this for the third time in consecutive years in the United States, the, the life expectancy kept going down. And he was asking the question of why. And the answer was what sociologists call deaths of despair, suicide, overdose, and cirrhosis of the liver. We, we were losing the will to live. We were drinking ourselves to death, numbing ourselves to death. This trend has just kind of continued. That the leading cause of death in the age bracket for adolescents from 10 to 14 years old is suicide. Is suicide. The, the world is desperate. We need hope. We need, a new, we need a new vision to see reality. Who, who got the alert on their phones today at 2.30? Yeah, we all did, right? Norman was telling me. You wanted, Norman, that's a great anecdote. Can you just share what you shared with me earlier? There were millions of people today who thought that when that went off, it was activating this zombie hive mind. But people, as Norman said, though, he's like, but people are like, I don't know about a Jesus, though. I don't, I don't believe in that. <laughs> but I'm pretty sure the aliens put some graphene in my body, and I'm going to kill people with my bare hands, you know? Yeah, we just need new vision. We just need a new vision to see reality, to see things differently, right? We need new vision. We need new hope. And... I know, like, I, I can get despairing, you know, just as much as the, as the next guy, but, like, because it, it does feel daunting. It feels daunting, the thought of how will anything in our culture be righted? How will we ever make headway? And I often think about the early church. I think about St. Paul, for example, right? Before St. Paul, there was, no, there was no such thing as missionaries before St. Paul. Nobody did what St. Paul did. There was no missionaries of Zeus. There was no missionaries of Aphrodite. There was no, they didn't do what he did. St. Paul, filled with this message called the gospel, brings this message to the, the Roman Empire. He goes to this place called Ephesus, right? Have we heard of the letter, the letter to the Ephesians, right? He goes to this town called Ephesus. In Ephesus, Ephesus was known for its silver production. And they had one of the wonders of the ancient world, which was this massive temple to the Greek goddess Artemis. It was one of the wonders of the ancient world. It was massive, right? And they had this whole industry of selling these little, these little figurines of the Greek goddess. Paul goes to Ephesus and he proclaims the gospel. He brings a message to Ephesus and he changes everything. This is, this is what it looked like. This is what the temple of Artemis, this is not an actual photograph. This is what the temple of Artemis looked like. This massive, it was 400 feet long, filled with these 60 foot tall columns 
unbelievably beautiful. Paul comes there confronting and overthrowing the false goddess and proclaiming the message. You know what is left of the temple of Artemis today? This. That's all. And it's not just merely erosion that's done this. What happened? Paul unleashed the gospel there. He had an explosive message. He had an announcement to make. He called it, it was the, called the kerygma. It's the fancy Greek word. It just means proclamation, right? It was Paul proclaiming news to them. And it wasn't just like, let me tell you the weather. No, it was the kind of news that just changed empires. It changed Western civilization. It changed history. The gospel is the news that changes everything. It's the news that has changed the world. It's the news that, it's, it's, the, it's the world's only hope, to be quite frank. The world is desperate and crying out for hope, and the gospel is the only hope the world has. So tonight, what I want to do as we begin this journey, last week we began in the heart, this week I just want to kind of continue to stoke those flames of awe and wonder by retelling the story. I know we come from different paths and different parts of the journey. Some of us maybe have a really deep history and relationship with Jesus, and that's amazing. Maybe some of us are really just feeling totally new to this. And I just want us to have a fresh and level starting ground by telling us the story, telling us the gospel. And I want to remind us that like, God's not nervous about what's going on in the world right now. Like we, We're nervous. We get nervous. But God's not nervous at all. So we really shouldn't be either. Okay, sound good? This is what we're doing. Give me some of this if you're with me. Okay, we're going to start here. Paul's letter to the Romans. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. These would be maybe great uh, scripture passages to revisit. So if you want to jot any of these things down, go back to these. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. So I want to look at this word gospel. The word gospel is an English translation of the Greek word euangelion. You try that. Euangelion. What does that word euangelion mean? Well, it comes from the Greco-Roman military world. It's not, it's not a native religious word. Euangelion, it was the proclamation that an angeloi, a messenger, that's where we get the word angel, an angeloi would be sent to all the parts of the empire to to announce the news of a major victory, that the emperor has won a major decisive battle. We have defeated this many enemy, right? We've claimed this territory, right? Euangelion was the good news of victory. So when the early church, when Paul was looking for a word to describe this message that they had to give the world, they didn't borrow a word from the Greek, you know, literary world. They borrowed a word from the Roman, the Greco-Roman military world, a word that spoke of battle and victory. Euangelion. Euangelion. Here's, here's the, the, the least inadequate analogy I've heard to describe this, right? So imagine this. Imagine that you're not Americans. Imagine that you are French. Do I hear some ha-ha? Very good. Okay, so we're French. We're living in the year 1944. Things have been awful for Europe for a long time. Right, Europe has been under the sway of a tyrannical dictator, a man who is just hell-bent on bringing death and destruction. Ah, oh, it's just miserable. People you know are dead, concentration camps. It's just misery, without hope. And you are having breakfast one day in your French chateau. You're doing well for yourself. You and your friend Pierre, you had a little business. 
I'm just trying to create a little backstory for you. Okay, so you're having breakfast, and the newspaper boy throws a newspaper through the window, and you see the newspaper, and the first thing you think is, this is in English, and that is weird. <laughs> and the next thing you think is, wow, invasion, allies land in France, smash ahead, fleet, planes, shootists, battling Nazis. Do you think that you would take a drag of your cigarette and say, what is the rest of the news? And just turn the page. No. Th this would be life-changing news. Like, this is news that has definitively changed everything. And friends, the gospel is infinitely more so life-changing news. So what is this message? Paul comes to Ephesus proclaiming the kerygma, this essential message, this proclamation. What is this message? We can break it down essentially into four parts. These might be things you want to write down. There's no quiz, but they're just good things to write down. The first part of the, the gospel, the kerygma, is we're looking at the goodness of creation. And we look at sin and its consequences. Thirdly, God's response to our sin. And finally, our response to what God has done. The goodness of creation, sin and its consequences... God's response to our sin and our response to what God has done. You can break this down even further, even more simple, just with one word, created, captured, rescued, and response. So the four essential movements of the gospel. But because I really, really love the Old Testament, I feel... I feel like to be truly fair to the biblical revelation, you really got to do this. You got to do created, captured, Israel, rescued, response. You got to have Israel in there. It is the whole Old Testament. Okay? Okay. Created, captured, Israel, rescued, response. This is what we're looking at. I want to zero in our attention on the second and the third, well, captured and rescued. I want to look at those parts in spe specifically tonight because I want to awaken in us, first and foremost, awe and wonder and awe and trust and then to have unshakable confidence in who Jesus is and what he's done for us. So to do this, we're going to look back at, <clears throat> start here. We're going to start with the goodness of creation. So it's so crucial for us, if we're going to understand the story, we have to understand Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 correctly. Right? These are the first first three chapters of the story. If we miss this, we miss everything. And people often miss Genesis 1 through 3. They get confused about what, what they're reading, right? So like Genesis, it's, it's, not, it's not a scientific book telling us how things came about. It's theologically inspired poetry. It's true just in a way that's, it's true in a way that like a scientific book is, is it's true in a different way than a science book is true. It's communicating its truth in a literary form versus a scientific or a journalistic form. The form is different, right? You wouldn't go into a library and read every section of the library with the same interpretive lenses. You don't interpret the scripture with the same interpretive lenses. So it's not to try to explain how things happened, but why things happened. And what's so important for us is that the secular atheistic worldview, the worldview that surrounds us, the worldview that's in the academy, that just is in the air that we breathe, this atheistic worldview sees the entire universe simply as like matter 
in motion, operating in fields of force. There is no meaning, there is no purpose, there's no morality. There's, there are, there's, only, there's only states of affairs. There's no, you cannot derive any oughts from the universe. There's no, it ought to be this way, or that ought not have happened. Like, there's just states of affairs. There's no morality, there's no good, there's no evil, there's no right, there's no wrong. It's an incredibly bleak worldview. Is there any wonder why our, so many people are so desperate and hopeless? They keep breathing this noxious gas of like, there's no hope, it's all meaningless, you are just a collection of molecules, that's all you are, right? Genesis paints a very, very different picture. Genesis is answering the question of why is there something, like rather than nothing, why? Why is there a universe? Why is there something rather than nothing? And the answer, in a word, is that there is a God. There is one God, and He is good through and through. That's who and what He is. And He created everything out of nothing, freely, by the sheer power of His Word. He wasn't coerced to do it, and He didn't do it so that He could be worshipped. He did it simply as, as Thomas Aquinas says, diffusive of His being. Right? He wanted to share His goodness. That's why He made it, and it was effortless. And everything that... Everything was created because he loves it and wished it to be so. And it's good. Everything he made is good. In its nature, it is good. Things can get twisted, but in so far as they exist, they are good. This is a great principle that we're going to talk about later, but the devil doesn't have his own clay. All he can do is he can twist the good things that God has made. The devil doesn't have his own clay. All he can do is pervert. And the high point, the pinnacle of all that he made, is pandas. Just want to make sure you're paying attention. No, it's us, right? Us. We are the pinnacle of what he made, right? Of all the creatures, right? The male and female standing together in their complementarity, together are his image bearers in creation, right? The human person is his image bearer in creation. I want to zero in on a, on a single verse that really just filled me with an experience of awe and wonder a few years ago, right? So Genesis, Genesis 1, verse 16, right at the beginning. Genesis 1, verse 16, we hear this, that God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day, which is the, and the lesser light to govern the night, which is the, and then there's a semicolon. And then it says, and he made the stars also. Are you feeling me? No. He, okay, semicolon. He made the star. Do you know how many stars there are? Have you ever thought how many stars? You haven't thought about how many stars there are. All right, let's, tr let's try this. Okay. This is like the, this is the understatement of understatements. This is like the, oh yeah, he made the stars, right? Okay. Here's a way to begin wrapping our heads around this. Our sun is about one of about 200 billion stars in our galaxy called the Milky Way. 200 billion with a B, buh, 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 okay? 200 billion stars in our galaxy. There are approximately 300 billion, buh, 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 galaxies in the visible universe. Those points of light are not stars. Those are individual galaxies. This image here is called the Hubble Deep Field. They took the Hubble Space Telescope and pointed it at a section of the sky that's approximately the size of a postage stamp held at arm's length at a part of the sky that appeared completely blank, and they just let it collect light for a while, not expecting to find anything. And then they found this, and they were like, holy 
right there. Like, it's just so much bigger than we thought. It's so much bigger than we thought. You don't seem impressed yet. All right, let me keep trying. All right. Think of it this way. Our sun is a relatively small-ish star. And into our sun, you can fit approximately 986,000 Earths. Take the Earth. 986,000 of them can fit into our sun, right? Okay. By contrast, the largest star so far found by astronomers is a star that they named Canis Majoris. It means big dog. It's very appropriately named. Much like the Grand Canyon. If you've ever been there, you're like, that's a great name for this thing. <laughs> anyway, into Canis Majoris, into Canis Majoris, you can fit seven quadrillion Earths. Uh, and that's where you're supposed to say, what's a quadrillion, right? Okay, I'll tell you, okay. That's also what a quadrillion looks like, seven quadrillion. Let's wrap our heads around this. A million seconds ago is approximately 11 and a half days ago. A billion seconds ago is approximately 31 years ago. You feeling it so far? A trillion seconds ago is approximately 31,000 years ago. Now we're getting somewhere. And a quadrillion seconds ago is 31 million seconds ago, or years ago. 31, or one quadrillion seconds ago is 31 million years ago. And you can fit seven quadrillion stars, Earths into this one star that God made, semicolon, he made the stars also. Okay. Into this universe, into this universe that's 46 billion times 5.88 trillion light years across and ever expanding. What's my point? You can't fathom the scale. But let's try. Do you feel gigantic or tiny? How about that, eh? Man, that's so wild. I love the part where it's like, local bubble. I just like the local bubble. It's my favorite part of it all. Okay, here's the point. Here's the point. In the midst of this universe that is 46 billion, blah, 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 trillion light years across and ever expanding, the creature that this amazingly powerful God who just, who by the sheer power of his words, semicolon, makes the stars also, the, the creature that that God, who is so much bigger than any of you or I could ever imagine, that, that God, the creature that that God loves the most is not y'all, it's not humanity, it's you. In your, you, your you-ness, your particularity, it's you. He has his infinite attention and eyes and heart and love fixed on you. Which should tell you to chill. Like, yeah, he's got the whole world in his hand. He's got you in his hand. Like, he knows, I love that scripture says, he knows how many hairs are on your head, some people's heads, your head, not my head. <laughs> Have you ever thought about, like, what a stupid thing to know? What a, like, what a, what a useless thing to know. He's like, yeah, I know, but I know it. But, like, that's what love does. Love knows ridiculous things. He's just trying to tell you, just calm down, relax. But that begs the question, if that's true, 
Like, what in the world went wrong? Like, if God loves us, if he loves me so much, and if I'm the creature that he loves the most, why is everything so obviously messed up? This brings us to the second part of the gospel, the kerygma, sin and its consequences. And honestly, up until a few years ago, I didn't get this part. I did not understand this because we don't really talk about this. In the kind of happy, clappy church that many of us grew up in, like, we just, you're fine, I'm fine, we're all fine. Jesus just wants us to be nice. Not true. We'll get to that later. But, like, if we don't have an appreciation for the badness of the bad news, the goodness of the good news is just going to be meh. If we don't know how bad it is, we don't, can't possibly understand how good the offer of Christianity is. So we're going to really soak in this, and it's going to feel very dark, and that's intentional. Like, honestly, the grace that we want to ask for while going through this is, is in some ways to feel and to taste utter despair. To feel hopeless. Because only then is a Redeemer good news. Because the bad news is horrific. It's worse than your worst nightmare. So understand the bad news. We're going to look at these five things. I think it's five. Who is the enemy? Why did he rebel? What is his primary tactic? What's his primary lie? What is his end game or goal for you and me? And what are the horrific consequences of sin? That's what we're looking at. So this first one, who is the enemy? What's his identity? Uh, many of us, I think, live... This is ironic because I'm going to show a Marvel clip later in the talk tonight. But many of us live with like this Marvel Universe concept of God versus the devil, right? We think of like, like Jesus is the really good, strong God and the devil's this other really, really bad guy. He's like Thanos and like we're either duking it out and like, man, I hope the good God wins, right? Don't let him get the infinity gauntlet, right? Because that just seems really bad. This is not reality. This is not reality. This is not reality. This is not what we believe. The devil is not a co-equal divinity. No, the devil is a creature. He's a fallen angel. Right? This comes to us from the scriptures. This comes to us from tradition. We know that the enemy is a fallen angel. His name is Lucifer. He's a creature that God made who in his nature is good, but in his will he's twisted himself so far in rebellion. He is so dark and depraved. His name literally means light bearer. Lucifer. Lucifer. But the light that he bears is a false light. So in the scriptures, we hear a fuller image of who the enemy is. In the book of Revelation, chapter 12, verse 4, we hear this, that speaking of the enemy as this in the image of a dragon, it says that his tail sweeps a third of the stars from the sky. Stars in the scriptures are, are, are a literary symbol or a literary um, tool that, that also speaks of the angels, right? So by, by raising your hand... On the top of your Christmas tree, who has a star? Who has an angel? Uh -huh. Who has a pheasant? <laughs> My mom does. I don't know why. <laughs> yeah. True confessions. She should take this class. Anyway. Stars and angels. Stars and angels are kind of synonymous. So what Scripture is telling us is that a third of the heavenly host falls in rebellion with Lucifer. They say, we will follow you. So the enemy is not just a single entity. The enemy is this maligned army, this 
fallen demonic host of angels that's that's rebelled against God out of envy and goes to war against us. That's who we are up against. When Paul talks about our battle is not with flesh and blood, our battle is with principalities and powers. Principalities and powers are names for ranks of angels. He's talking about fallen angels, right? A malign force beyond what we could comprehend. And the scriptural reason, many of us probably grew up hearing that the scriptural reason, the sin of the enemy for his fall was pride. The motivation for it was envy. Book of Wisdom, we hear this, Wisdom 2.24, through the envy of the devil, death entered the world, and those who are in his possession experience it. So what is envy? Envy is different than jealousy. Jealousy in some ways can be good. Jealousy can be a motivating force, right? I, I'm jealous of your work ethic. I want to emulate what I see in you, right? Envy is always and everywhere evil. Because envy says, I want what you have, and I don't want you to have it, and I'll do whatever I can to strip it from you. That's envy. I want what you have. I don't want you to have it. I'm going to work like crazy to strip it from you. So who is the devil envious of? Who's he envious of? Not God. Us. Us. Let that sink in for a second. He's envious of us. Why? Because according to tradition, according to the revelation of the saints, according to, according to what we believe about the angels, according to what we believe about the angels, that God, before he created the material universe, he showed the angels a semblance of the plan that he was going to enact. Part of the reason why we also know this is because it comes up in exorcisms, right? Under compulsion, demonic forces are forced to speak the truth of why they rebelled. What we learn is this, that God showed the angels a semblance of the plan he was going to enact. Namely, he was going to create a material universe. And in that material universe, he was going to pour his creativity and beauty. And in one small part of that universe, he was going to create life. And in that life, he was going to join himself to that life. Right? He showed them the plan of the incarnation. Specifically, he showed them Mary. In this human creature, God would dwell. And Lucifer sees this plan and thinks, no, 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 no. Like, you should not become human. You should become an angel. My nature is so far superior to theirs. And he says to God, in Latin, of course, non serviam, right? I will not serve. I will not serve. And he goes to war. His conflict is against us. He's not going to war against God. He knows he can't win against God. God's God. But he's going to war against the creature that God loves the most. And what's his strategy? Primarily, his tactic, his strategy, is to lie. And he lies about, he lies about who God is. This, is. this is from Genesis 3. He lies about the identity of God. This was the root of the temptation in Genesis chapter 3. Like, he's not trying to get them to worship Satan. Right? When the serpent approaches Adam and Eve, he's not saying, I want you to be Satan worshipers. No, no. He's just trying to get them to aim their hearts to direct their attention to anything apart from God. So he levels this preemptive strike. He just drops this seductive question. Like by letting us see, by God letting us see Genesis 3, he's showing us not just simply what happened a long time ago. He's letting us see what happens in every temptation. Right? And it, go, it goes something like this, right? So the serpent said to the woman, so first he asks, 
did God say that you shall not eat of any fruit on any of the trees in the garden? And Eve responds, no, no, no. We must not eat of the fruit of the tree in the center of the garden, nor shall we touch it lest we die. And the serpent responds, you will not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Laced in this response is this seductive suggestion that like, that you, God is not a good father to be trusted. He's not who you think he is. Like if he really loved you, he would let you have this. He's holding out on you. He doesn't want you to flourish. He doesn't want your good. He's actually a competitor. He's a rival. Like if God really loved you, he would have, he would have, he would have let you have this, right? And she falls for it. She falls for it in the garden where there is no sin, where there's no death, where there's no cancer and no betrayal, they fall for it. How much easier is it for the enemy to tempt us in this world where we have suffered, where he says things like, if God really loved you, he would have prevented your friend from dying. If God really loved you, he would have answered that prayer. If God really loved you, Your parents wouldn't have gotten divorced. You wouldn't have gotten sick. This wouldn't have happened. That's what he does over and over again. And his end, and his end game, his goal, it's really simple. We hear it in John chapter 10. Jesus says, he describes the enemy as the thief, juxtaposed to the good shepherd. The thief, he says, has come to steal and to kill and to destroy. That's his goal for your life. I get shivers when I think about like, that order that Jesus says, to steal, to kill, and to destroy. That there's something worse than killing. He's going to steal, he's going to kill, and he's going to destroy. He hates us with a passion that we cannot imagine. Like He's just sheer hate. Like, and his sole desire is to see you die, believing the lie that God is the enemy of your happiness. Like, there's going to come a moment for every single one of us where we die. We are mortal. We will die. And there's going to be one of two things that we're going to hear. Jesus is going to say, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into your master's joy. Or something else, which none of us want to hear. And I had this image while praying about a year or so ago, where I saw myself in line. Like, I was praying about this. I saw myself in line. I had died. I was on the precipice of entering heaven before the gates. And there's this long line of people in front of me. And I can see Jesus up there, and I can just barely hear him. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Well done, my good and faithful daughter. Enter in your master's joy. Big embrace. They come in. And it finally comes up to me. And I just see Jesus turn. And he walks away. And then there's just darkness. And then from the darkness, you begin to hear this laughter. I began to hear this laughter. And it just said two words. You fool. That's his goal. For us to die in the lie that happiness is a found apart from God, like that's the enemy. He's not to be trifled with. He is sheer hate. John Paul II said, have nothing to do with him. 
have nothing to do with him. He, he's not cute. He doesn't have horns and a red tail and a pitchfork. So what are the horrific consequences of sin, of our rebellion? Oftentimes you hear this, that the consequences of sin are that we are separated from God. And that's true. And that's horrible. But that's not the bad news. We are separated from God. But it's worse than that. The big deal is this. That in the sin of humanity's first parents, humanity, like because Adam and Eve, they were, they were like corporate persons. Like all of humanity was present in them. It's like, you know, on the news when they say, today from Washington, we hear this. Like from Adam and Eve, they did this. Like we are implicated in that. We are caught up into it. All of humanity, as a race, we, are, we became stuck by our own fault, like utterly hopeless and helpless because we sold ourselves into slavery to powers that we were helpless against. We, we became drafted, willing rebels in his army. We sold ourselves into these powers. The powers of sin and death. We came under the dominion the power of sin and death. Like, that's the consequence. We weren't just separated. We were in the grip of another. Like, every year at Advent, we sing that Advent hymn, that ancient Advent hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and what? And ransom what? Captive Israel. Have you ever thought about that? We are crying out. We're entering in that Advent hymn. We are entering into the ache of Israel, the ache of humanity before the coming of the Messiah, before the coming of Christ, longing for someone to come and rescue us. We're not just separated. We were taken. We were taken. Let's watch this.
to come back to that because that's actually that's like the voice of the father that came back in prayer not too long ago just like that is the power with which God speaks to our situation we are under the dominion we are under the dominion taken like we tend to think of sin as, as simply the things that we do and the things that we don't do Right, sins of omission, sins of commission. But before there's sins that we personally do, like St. Paul, the, like in the Bible, he speaks of sin as like this oppressive power. He speaks, of it, he speaks of it as if it's like a tyrannical government, that it is pressing itself upon us everywhere present, insinuating itself in every fiber of our existence. You cannot escape it. And he says, this is what death is. Death is like this masquerading pseudo-God that is inescapable. Death was not part of the original plan. Death entered the story. Like the reality is, like I said, you are going to die. Everyone in this room, either you will bury me or I will bury you. Every single one of us. There's like a lordship to death. I don't mean it to be like, like we worship death. What I'm saying is like, there is a power to death that we are so powerless against. It doesn't matter how much money you have. You can't buy your way out of death. You can prolong it, maybe, in some ways. You can't stop it. You can't stop it. Despite how much you might want to. I want to show you this video of this kid. His name is Nick Magnati. Just... As you're watching this, just let yourself feel the helplessness before death. To the side of the left, look like. I'm leaving this 
Vincent Pangati. I'm 27 years old. Uh, I am at, I'm stage four appendix cancer. And uh, this is my seven-month-old daughter, Austin. I was first diagnosed with cancer. I was 24 years old. The chemo has got to a point where it's no longer doing what it's supposed to do. Uh, even though I was continuing treatment, my pain was getting worse. So it's an indication that the cancer is spreading faster than the chemo can kill it. So um, we decided to stop chemotherapy just because chemo makes me feel so cruddy. Uh, we want to be able to enjoy every single day to its fullest and when you feel you know, so ill you can't get out of bed, it's kind of hard to do that. I'm not scared of death. I feel blessed because I'm living every person's dream. I get to spend every day with people that I love and I get to do anything and everything that I want to do. I get to, you know, at least I want to take our little baby Austin to the aquarium and go to the aquarium. The relationship that's developed. The amount that I've gone to behold God. I, I just wish everyone could get to experience what I feel. I just feel so blessed. She's my little bundle of joy. I love her so much. And this is another reason why we're doing this video is because I want her to know that her daddy loved the Lord. And that her daddy wants to help people so that she about the same part. Um, you know, just talking to God about how I know that even if I'm not here, that He's her father and He's going to take care of her. I'd love to be a part of raising her every single year of her life, but any every day the Lord getting me with her is just the biggest blessing. A bigger blessing than I, I deserve. Words can't describe how it feels to have her as my daughter and to be blessed with her. Um, so I do worry, but that's just because I'm human. Um, I know that Austin is going to take care of her. I know that the Lord has big plans for her. I know that she's going to accomplish some pretty impressive things in her life. Smiles? Got a proud daddy, Austin, already. So, doing good. Like, it's so beautiful, right? It's so beautiful. But it, I hate death. I hate death. I absolutely hate death. Like, this is the bad news. Like, this is the bad news. This is the situation of humanity before Christ. And that's the situation of humanity without Christ. This is an early church father. Listen to this. Sick, our nature demanded to be healed. Fallen, to be raised up. Dead, to rise again. We had lost the possession of the good it was necessary for it to be given back to us. Closed in the darkness, it was necessary to bring us the light. Captives, we awaited a savior. Prisoners, help. Slaves, a liberator. Are these things minor or insignificant? Did they not move God to descend to human nature and visit it since humanity was in so miserable and unhappy a state? Friends, so what does God do in response to this? Because God is not powerless to this demonic human trafficker. He's not powerless to the, the pseudo-God of death that masquerades with such pomp. Like, he doesn't leave us in the clutches of this situation. He acts in order to rescue us that we might have unshakable confidence. So what we're going to do, I promise we're about to come up out of the depths, I promise. 
But let's first take a little break. Sound good? Five minutes. Five minute break. Uh, there, was a, there was a really good question that uh, came during the break. Someone was asking, so why, like, I understand the garden, but why would God even plant that tree there in the first place? And I, I think a good response to that would be something along these lines, that, that it's, a, it's a literary symbol, it's a, it's a theological symbol of the limits of humanity before God is the creator, right? It's an, it's an image of our creaturely limitation that we are not the, the arbiters, the creators, or the determiners of what good and evil are. We receive that from the Lord. So like that fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, was he always wanted to give that to us. The problem was the grasping at it. right? Just like there's an, there was another tree in the garden. It was the tree of, who knows? Life. Life. He always was going to give us the fruit from the tree of life. Do you know what the fruit from the tree of life is? It's the Eucharist. We're going to get to that. I know that's a, that's a spoiler alert, right? In the Hail Mary, which we're going to teach you at the end of class today, we say, in the words of Scripture, blessed is the fruit of your womb, Jesus. This is what Elizabeth says to Mary. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. Right? Jesus is the fruit of Mary's womb. And on the cross... Jesus is hanging from a tree. He is the fruit hanging on a tree. And what does he say? If you eat my flesh, this is John chapter 6, if you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will have eternal life. The Eucharist is the fruit of the tree of life, and we were always going to, re we were always going to eat it. We just had to receive it. So this, the tree of the knowledge was meant to be a symbol of our limitations. I'll take maybe like one or two questions, if anybody has one or two questions before we jump back in. Does anybody have anything? Are we doing okay? The bad news is pretty bad. Anybody cry? I was crying. That Nick Magnati video gets me every time. Should I jump back in? Yes? Okay. Do you need the good news? Do you need the good news? Okay, all right. Well, there's too much to talk about, so we're just going to go home. I'm just kidding. No, there's too, there's too much. There's too much. I'm just going to zero in on two aspects of Jesus' life, his very beginning and the very end, um, the incarnation and the passion. So we're going to start with this question. Why, why did Jesus come in the first place? The, the God who semicolon made the stars also, right? The God who banged out the Big Bang, who made those gigantic things and those mini, mini, tiny, tiny microscopic things, the God of infinite majesty and power did not have to come among us. He was not compelled. There was not a vote. Why, oh God, did you take on flesh to come among us, to travail beneath the starry curtain of creation? Why did you come to breathe our air and to eat our food and to drink our water and to suffer our sufferings and to die our death? Why did you do this? Why did he come? The scriptural answer is to tell us to get along. Just kidding. Just, get, just gotta make sure you're paying attention. Okay, no. If you look at the Bible, are you with me, people? Are you with me? Okay, John, 1 John, 1 John 3.8, we hear this, that the reason the Son of Man appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. 
It wasn't to tell stories. It wasn't to do miracles. It wasn't to walk on water. It wasn't to show us how to be human. It was to combat something, to destroy something. There's a scene where Jesus enters the synagogue in Capernaum. And there's a possessed person there. And the demon speaks to the Lord and says, I know who you are, Jesus of Nazareth. Then he asks him the question, have you come to destroy us? The answer to the question is, I have a very particular set of skills. I don't know what you want. I will find you and I will kill you. Like Jesus, that is Jesus, right? That is Jesus. Yes, the answer to the demon's question is yes. I have come to destroy you. I have come to destroy you. Right before Jesus enters upon his passion, he gives this parable. He says, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world shall be cast out. It's as if the entire incarnation, the entire event of God becoming flesh is itself like one massive exorcism. I've come to cast out the enemy. Or on the night before his passion, he says, he asks this kind of riddle. He asks, how can, how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless... He first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may take his possessions. I am convinced that 99% of Christians hear that parable in the exact opposite way that Jesus intends it. Because who is the strong man in this parable? Satan is the strong man. What is his house? Jesus says, now is the ruler of this world. What's his house? If you know it, shout it. This world. And what are his possessions? Us. Jesus is saying, I have come to bind the strong man, to render him incapable, powerless, and to take his possessions. Anybody here fans of like C.S. Lewis, Chronicles of Narnia fans? Anybody? All right. You're my friends. Everyone else, you've got some reading to do. Um, in the line, the witch in the wardrobe, what is Aslan? Aslan, who's Christ? He storms Jadis's castle. He storms the Ice Queen's castle to take back the possessions, the Narnians, right? I'm getting ahead of myself. That's the story. That's what Jesus, that's why he came. Let's go back to D-Day. Imagine a multiple choice quiz where I'm asking sophomores in high school because they're wise fools and idiots, right? Sophomores in high school. If I ask them the question, what are they doing there, those soldiers? What are they doing there, those guys? If I say, all right, A, they heard that the beaches of Normandy are awesome. B, uh, they all had go see the Mona Lisa in the Louvre on their bucket list. C, they heard that the coffee along the Champs-Élysées is just fabulous this time of year. Or how about D, they're there to fight. We all picking D? Yeah. Some sophomores would pick A, B, or C. Let's just be honest, right? They're there to fight. It's obvious why they're there. It's obvious why they're there. There's no ambiguity. They're there to confront an enemy. They're there to confront an enemy. They're there to throw, overthrow a tyrant dictator. They're there to rescue and liberate a people. The problem with 
the church, the problem with most Christians is I could show this picture to the congregation on a Sunday mass and ask the same question. What is he doing there? Meaning Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, in a stable, lying in a manger in Judea. What is he doing there? And just as many heads as there are in the church, I probably would get different answers. Friends, he's there for the same reason. He came to fight. Like the reason the second person of the Trinity stormed the beaches of creation was to confront a tyrant far worse than Hitler, far worse than Pharaoh, far worse than all of them combined. He came to rescue and liberate a people, captive Israel, held in the clutches of sin and death. That's why he is there. He didn't come to do miracles or to tell stories. He came to fight for you and for me. In Hebrew, in the Old Testament, he, God refers to himself as humanity's goel. The word goel, we translate in English as redeemer. And we think, oh, that's like a churchy word. We know what that means. No, you don't. Goel is a very specific role in the Jewish cultural milieu. The, the goel was the eldest brother of the family, who if anybody from the family got murdered or taken or kidnapped or something was done to them, the eldest brother, the Goel, was, it, was, it was just known that you were going to go and avenge them. You were going to go and offer yourself for them. You were going to fight to bring them back. And God has been saying through the entire Old Testament, I am your Goel. I am your Redeemer. And that must have baffled them. Like, what do you mean? Like, like in like a spiritual way? No, he's like, no, literally, I'm coming for you. I'm coming for you. Like Jesus isn't merely nice or kind or gentle. I mean, he, he is, love is patient, love is kind. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. That's who he is. Thanks be to God or we'll be toast. Jesus is Lord. Kyrios in the Greek. He is Lord. And he's utterly unconquerable. He's a warrior. When he enters into the agony in the garden, we think he's entering into an emotional, psychological turmoil. The word in Greek is he entered, in, he entered an agony. An, an agony, agonia, was a public spectacle. It was a, it was a competitive public fight. It was... It was had the imagery, the connotation of like a warrior fighting somebody else. Like that's what he's doing in Gethsemane. That's why he's sweating blood. Like Socrates faced death more bravely than how most Christians think Jesus faced death. Most Christians think Jesus is like, oh no, I don't want to do this. I'm just so scared. He is putting blue war paint on. Like he is going to battle. He's going to battle. Like Christmas, we think of the beginning of Jesus' life. We, th we think Christmas is cute because of crap like this. Because we, we put glitter everywhere on Christmas. I hate glitter so much, so much. I love Christmas cards. Feel free to send me a Christmas card. But if you have glitter on your Christmas card, so help me God. So we think of Christmas like, oh, the angels showed up, glory to God in the highest, super cute, like, oh my gosh, it's the pageant. No, <laughs> no, that is not, like, this is, this is not even close, but this is somewhat closer to what the angels looked like, right? In, the, in Luke's gospel, he says, 
there were shepherds keeping watch over their flocks by the, at night in the field. And a whole stratias of the heavenly host appears to them, crying out glory to God in the highest. Like, we, for whatever reason, we think like just like an angel choir showed up to sing the Gloria, you know, that we sing at church on Sundays. Glory to God in the high. Like, sweet, Christmas is on, baby, let's go. No, no. Stratias means army. That's where we get the word like strategic, right? It's a military connotation. An army appeared in the heavenly hosts. An army appeared in the night sky. Why? Because the baby king landed behind enemy lines to begin the rebellion, to begin the great war, to save us. Look, I, I, let me, I want to give you a new image for the, like, every single Sunday, except through Lent, we sing the Gloria at Mass, right? It's the, it's the song of the angels, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to people among, of, of goodwill, right? We hear it as this churchy hymn sung by Gladys, you know, whoever she is, singing the Gloria, right? Nothing against Gladys. The Gloria is not a church hymn. The Gloria is heaven's battle cry. When you hear the glory, like when you think Christmas, the glory to glory in Excelsis Deo, I want you to think this. This is much closer to the angels appearing in the heavenly host.
on now. I can't watch that without getting choked up. I don't know. Nothing's wrong with me. That's truth. That's the Gloria. That's Christmas. That's what happened. Like, oh, man. Oh, man. All right. You with me? You with me, people? All right. Look at this. Christianity. C.S. Lewis. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed and has landed in disguise if you will, to take back what is properly his, namely this world and us. The gospel, friends, it is the story of the invasion of one kingdom by a stronger kingdom. The incarnation is the invasion of the kingdom of death and sin and hell by another kingdom. Light, the kingdom of light. Like in the baby lying in the manger, like he's, he is, he's a liberator, right? He's a liberator. That's who he is. Check out this quote. This is the day. The invasion has begun. Is this really the beginning of the long-awaited liberation? The liberation we've all talked so much about, which, is, which still seems too good too much of a fairy tale to ever come true. The best part of the invasion is that I have the feeling that friends are on the way. The thought of friends and salvation means everything to us. So how did he do it? How did he fight? How does he accomplish this? Let's look at this. Let's look at the passion. Look at Jesus on the cross and ask yourself, or answer for yourself, is, is Jesus on the cross, is he a victim or is he the aggressor? Is he, is he the hunted here? Is he the hunter? Like, is this the tragic, unfortunate conclusion to a life that was brimming over with promise, so cut short, or was this deliberate on purpose? And if this was on purpose, why? Why was this on purpose? On the cross, Jesus, yes, he's the willing victim, but he is the hunter. He's doing something. He's doing something. He is, as a friend of mine, a priest says, he's the ultimate ambush predator. Right? Ambush predators, they're in every ecosystem. There's those animals that hunt by lying very still and motionless, camouflaging themselves with their environment in order to what? To, entra- to attract their prey to come close. Jesus, on the cross is camouflaging himself in the events of the passion as he, as he sweats blood, as he allows himself to be spit upon and beaten and blindfolded and his beard plucked and whipped and lashed and scourged with his flesh hanging from his body, as he allows himself to be mocked and crowned with thorns and carry the cross up to Golgotha, as he allows himself to be nailed to a cross. How do you nail God to a cross? Where do you get a nail that big? They don't sell that at Home Depot. The only way you nail God to a cross is if he wanted to be nailed to a cross, if he wanted to be there. Why does he want to be there? Because he's hunting, because he's deceiving the deceiver who could not have fathomed that God would have lowered himself in this way to do this. Like by lying still and motionless, Jesus is allowing the prey death. 
Satan, sin, to draw close. It's as if he wants to get swallowed by this monster called death so that from inside the belly of death, he could explode it from the inside out. Listen to this quote from from St. Epiphanius, that Archbishop of Cyprus that you guys read that homily. Yesterday, Good Friday, he was slapped. Today he strikes hell's household with a thunderbolt of his godhead. Yesterday he was bound. Today he binds fast the tyrant with unbreakable bonds. Yesterday he was condemned. Today he grants freedom to the damned. Yesterday Pilate's minions mocked him. Today hell's porters shudder to see him. He shatters the woodless gates of bronze by the wood of the cross. Accordingly, he who yesterday refused the aid of legions of angels... Today, with God-befitting majesty as warrior and master, goes down by means of death to the depth of death and hell to oppose the tyrant of death. Can I get an oorah? The Lord, friends, the Lord has abolished death. He defeated death. And while we, while we still will die, death can't hold us. Death can't hold us. Because we will have in us, because of Jesus, the life that death can't hold, death after death comes to claim us, death finds Christians detestable, distasteful. And so death will spit us out as it spat him out. I'm going to end with this. The radical consequences of Christ's victory. This is Jesus trampling over death, by the way, right? And this, that's Adam and Eve awaiting in the depths of death. All right, the radical consequences of what Jesus has done. This comes from Paul to the Colossians. He says, Christ has disarmed the principalities and powers and made a public example of them, triumphing over them in him. I want to look at that word triumph. We hear the word triumph and we think like, like victory, like he won. Not quite, not quite. So what is a triumph? A triumph was a very specific term used in the, in the Greco-Roman world, in the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was a culture of immense pageantry, right? A culture of immense spectacle. So a triumph is the spectacle of spectacles. It was like a mega parade in a city and a culture of parades. Everyone is there to celebrate victory over a tyrant. So I forget which historian uh, tells the story of Julius Caesar's defeat over the king of Gaul. It takes eight years for them to defeat him. But this is what we hear, that they apprehend the king of Gaul. Caesar is sitting on a throne, and soldiers bring in front of Caesar the deposed king of Gaul. And Roman soldiers come up behind him with a knife, and they literally cut his clothes off of him. So he's stripped naked, this disgraced king of Gaul, stripped naked before the king, of, before Caesar. And he's forced to kiss an emblem of the empire, the golden eagle, as a sign of saying, you have lost and then what they do next is they put the deposed king of Gaul into a cage on a cart. And in front of the cart is all of the stuff that they took in battle. All of the soldiers that they've taken, all of the spoils of war, everything is marched in this parade back into the capital. The end of the parade comes the disgraced king in this cage with a sign above him that reads, Behold the one who used to torment us. He will torment us no longer. Friends, that's what, like, that's what Paul is saying. That's what Jesus has done to Satan. 
Like Jesus is absolutely, utterly unconquerable. He has crushed Satan and sin and death. And the church is his outpost, his colony on earth. We are engaged in this battle with him. Like these powers of sin and death, like they truly have no power over us. And yet the battle rages on. We still fall into temptation, all of these things. The, the time that we're living in, Chris, you're my World War II historian. D-Day was what? Was the war over on June 6, 1944? And what was May 1945? V-E Day. So the time in between, historians look at D-Day and they say, effectively, the, the war was lost. We, like the Allies had won, right? But there were still many battles. And how many, say the thing about the casualties. More Americans were wounded and killed after D-Day than before. Same with the Battle of Gettysburg. More Americans died in the Civil War after Gettysburg. VE Day is the official end of the war, right? So we are living on the cross is the definitive end, the definitive defeat. But we're living in the in-between before, between D-Day and VE Day. Jesus has defeated him. It's over. The enemy's just rearranging furniture on the Titanic. The, the Christ iceberg has struck, right? Ship is going down, right? The guys are playing their violins on the deck, right? Jack and Rose are trying to figure it out. It's really dramatic. But the ship is going down. The ship is going down. As Mr. Andrews said, the ship will sink. Our time in the meantime, like as Christians, the mission is... Christianity is not a privatized little hobby. It's not a privatized hobby. N.T. Wright, who's an Anglican scripture scholar, he says this, that the Christian life is not about inner self-discovery and private devotion. If you're looking for a little privatized religion, a little inner self-discovery, there's a lot of books in the library. Deepak Chopra has written some good ones. Check those out. That's not what you're signing up for. Christianity is about, he says, public witness and rescue. Public witness and rescue public witness and rescue. And the fact that there's so many of us here tonight, I think attests to that, that it's happening. Someone has witnessed in a public way to you and has brought you here.